Well, if it's not completely obvious to you at this point, this summer we're going to be in the book of Proverbs. And the idea behind that is that we are going to be seeking after wisdom together as a church. So I was considering what to, what to do this summer. I, we always kind of do summer series, some kind of summer series. Um, the idea of seeking after wisdom together as a church, ironically, just seemed kind of like a wise thing to do. So, we begin with our study of Proverbs. Wisdom. Wisdom's kind of an interesting word. It's interesting in this regard. It's a very familiar term. We all hear wisdom, we hear the term, we, we think we have a pretty good grasp of what it means. And yet, on the other hand, there seems to be many different ways that we actually define the term. Right? You all know what it means, but if I asked you what it means, I'd hear lots of different answers. Most definitions of wisdom have something to do, of course, with knowledge. In other words, we, we would say, well, the more, you, the more you know, the more wise you become. And I think there's something that certainly sounds right about that definition. Wisdom is, is certainly made up of, of knowledge. Knowledge is a component of wisdom. And yet, that still falls short of a comprehensive understanding of what wisdom is. Wisdom is not simply just knowledge or the increase of knowledge. It must include knowledge, but we have to ask this question, knowledge of what kind? Knowledge of what kind? I could, I could memorize the periodic table. right? I could learn all the state capitals and that would increase my knowledge, but it wouldn't necessarily make me wiser, would it? Does the guy with a PhD inherently have more wisdom than the gal with just a high school education? In my experience, no. <laughs> not always. In fact, maybe I would say not often. I was considering as I was studying wisdom, you certainly look at uh, ancient philosophers, some of the, the, the wisest people that the world has known, and, and one that comes to mind is certainly Aristotle, I was thinking about this, my knowledge of science, my knowledge of technology, my, my knowledge of history is probably greater than that of Aristotle's. Does that make me wiser than Aristotle? I highly doubt that. So it's not just knowledge. Some have then said that wisdom is knowledge coupled with experience. That's a definition that I know I've used in the past. In fact, Webster's defin uh, dictionary definition kind of goes in that direction. This is what it says of wisdom. It says it's the quality of having experience, knowledge, and good judgment. But again, it, it sort of begs this question. Does good judgment then simply come by experience? Does getting older and, and living more of life and having that kind of experience under your belt make you more wise. Well, again, there's something that sounds kind of right about that. But it still falls short. Getting older doesn't always make a person wiser. It can certainly help. But there's many exceptions to the rule. I can recall my grandmother referring to my grandfather as an old fool on many occasions. So what makes a person wise? How do we grow in wisdom? 
Well, to understand a little bit more of wisdom, we, we need to understand that the word itself derives from the Proto-Indo-European root wide, W-E-I-D, which means this. It means to see. It means to see. And Aristotle, who I referred to a little bit earlier, gives us another important clue in his metaphysics when he says that wisdom is the understanding of causes. In other words, wisdom is the understanding of the right relations between things. So it's not so much just a kind of knowledge as it is a way of seeing or ways of seeing. You might recall the, the, uh, the Indian parable of the blind men and the elephant. Have you heard that one? Where each of the, of the blind men in seeking to understand what an elephant is like reaches out and touches the, the part of the elephant that's immediately in front of them. And for one of them, he reaches out and he, he touches the side of the elephant. And so he says, well, the elephant is, is like a wall. And another one who's standing in front of the leg reaches out and touches the leg and says, well, the elephant is, is like a tree. And the one who touches the trunk says, well, the elephant's like a snake. And the one in front of the ear, it's, it's like a fan. And the one in front of the tail, it, it's, it's like a rope. And, and so on. And the parable tells of this onlooking king who owns the elephant and he's, he's, he's observing all of this and he's not blind. And he points out to the blind men that they're all only partially right. And the moral of the story is that no one has the comprehensive vision of truth. We all have different experiences. And therefore, whenever we find ourselves at odds with others, we should be humble enough to recognize our limitations, to recognize our limitations of knowledge, our need for other people's perspectives, and that others may grasp truths that we do not. It's kind of a neat little parable. Until you realize it has some pretty serious philosophical flaws. Like this. How can the king claim to have a comprehensive knowledge of the truth if no one has a comprehensive knowledge of truth? Now certainly sighted people can see an entire elephant, right? But that's not the, that's not the point of the story. It's a parable. And the elephant in the parable represents truth itself. Not just an elephant. So how could you possibly know that no one can see the whole truth unless you have the superior comprehensive knowledge of truth that you just claimed nobody can have? It's an immensely arrogant claim to say that you can see the truth in ways that all others are only grasping about for. And when you first hear the parable, you think the moral is to look for whatever is true in someone else's perspective. And that is sort of the point of the parable, but it backfires. The story backfires when you consider that each of the blind men was actually wrong about what an elephant is like. So if, if here's my point. If wisdom is to see then growing in wisdom has to come with the recognition that we need eyes that are above our own. We need a, a vision of, of reality and truth that goes far beyond human limitations and human perspectives. And that's why verse 7 here in Proverbs chapter 1 is the key 
to unlocking the mystery of wisdom. Look down at it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you were to flip over to chapter 9 and verse 10, it's a very similar verse. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need eyes above our own. If Aristotle's right when he says that wisdom is the understanding of causes, and I think he's on the right track there, if, he, if he's saying it's, it's an, a, a right recognition of the relationships between things, then ultimate wisdom must not only acknowledge and seek the ultimate causer, but also seek to align oneself with the viewpoint of the causer's omnipotent eyes. To fear the Lord is to admit that seeking after God's way of seeing things is the doorway to growing in wisdom. And that's why we're going to spend the summer in Proverbs. That's why we're taking a look at this book. Verse 7 is the theme of the whole book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So just to kind of help us get into the mode of where we're going to be all summer, we have to certainly start by asking this question. It's an important one. What is a proverb? What is a proverb? Well, proverbs are a literary strategy. Okay? It's, it's a literary strategy. We often think of proverbs as a sort of a short saying of a practical truth that's easy to remember. Common things that, that we might throw out there, proverbs of, of modern day life would be things like this. A journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Or you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink it. Right? This little proverb that, that holds this, this little saying that holds this, this practical truth in a, in a short and easy, sort of bite-sized, memorable way. That's, that's what a proverb kind of is, but, but we also have to understand that the Hebrew word proverb is a little different. It's, it's related to a verb that means to represent or to be like. So a proverb in Scripture here is going to say, this little picture is like this big principle. This little thing will help you understand what the world is like, what God is like, what you are like. Ray Ortland says it like this. He says, a biblical proverb is meant to convey a little model of reality, a little representation of some aspect of our daily lives. And by picking it up and turning it over and looking at it from different angles, we can see something about our daily lives before we step out into actual reality. In other words, and, and this is, I think, a really helpful way of thinking of it too. Dr. Bruce Waltke says this really cleverly. He says, the world says, you live and you learn. But the Proverbs are saying, no, you learn. And then you live. You learn so that you can live. And another thing I think is important to, to state up front is that we need to understand that Proverbs are not meant to be taken as literal statements of propositional truth. Okay, let me explain what I mean by that. I mean that they're more poetic than that. They're more complex than that. And the reason for that is because life is poetic and complex. 
Not everything should just be kind of taken at face value. We have to understand that, that again, this is a literary strategy that's helping us to see things in, in sort of fuller, richer ways. There's a poetry involved here. That's true of all wisdom literature, by the way. We consider books like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Job. They, 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 they take into account these complexities to seek broader, fuller understanding of truth. And that's important to understand before we begin to read through the book because it helps us to avoid constructing bad doctrine. You don't want to just sort of read one little snippet out of a proverb and and just create this this overarching, always true statement about it. That that can sometimes lead to bad doctrine. It can help us avoid, by, by understanding that that's not how this works, contradicting God's Word. The full counsel of God's Word simply by proof texting a proverb. Let me give you an example of that. Listen to the counsel of Proverbs 26, verse 4. It says this. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So at face value, we say, okay, we should never engage with a fool. For fear that, again, we might become a fool as well. But then we look over at Proverbs 26.5 and it says this, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You say, wait, I, I, I thought we weren't supposed to answer a fool according to their folly, and now we should. How do we resolve that? How about Proverbs 3? Flip probably just a page over. Look at the first couple verses of Proverbs 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they shall add to you. So if I read those verses, do I say, okay, does that mean every godly Christian should expect to live well into their senior years? And if I, if I die young, does that mean I forgot the teaching of God? Or how about Proverbs 22.6? A lot of you know this verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Is that formulaic? What do I tell the parents who faithfully pointed their kids to the Lord and yet they still walk away from the faith? Did Proverbs mislead them? See, there's complexities here. And we resolve these things by understanding that, again, wisdom literature is poetic and complex. We resolve these things by understanding that, you know what, each of these principles are true, but not necessarily literally true in every situation, in every instance. Wisdom discerns how they're to be understood and applied. And the context of Scripture here will help us to do that. So all this said, I'm just sort of priming the pump for where we'll be going from here as we study the book of Proverbs over the summer. But here's where it starts. Here's where it starts. It starts with the fear of the Lord. We need to seek the mind and heart of God, and we need to ask Him to grant us the wisdom to see and to think about life the way He does. That's the purpose here. God, help us to see 
with your eyes. Help us to, to order and understand and discern life the way you do. Help us to live skillfully because our eyes are tapped into the One who made it all and ordered it all for His glory and for our good. So where are we going from here? That's what this first set of verses here in Proverbs does for us. It, it sort of sets the scene. If verse 7 is the theme of the book, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, then verses 1-6 through six are kind of like, like a movie poster. Where you look at the poster and you, you sort of get a hint then and a, and a direction of, of where it is that you're, you're going, what you're being invited to come in and see. We see the title here. It's the Proverbs. And we see the, the writer here. The producer of the book, if you will, is Solomon. Solomon, the, the son of David. Solomon, the king of Israel. And we recognize, okay, that's the title. This is the, this is the writer. He's the producer. We certainly recognize that, that God is still yet the executive producer. That the Holy Spirit is the head writer, right? All Scripture is inspired by God. But we, we understand that. And, and then we, we get the movie preview. Look at verse 2-6. through six. It's to know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing. In righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying. The words of the wise and their riddles. So these are the verses that, that sort of show to us what the goals of the book are. And you could, you could kind of nutshell it by saying this. It's about forming our heart and our head. It's, it's about character and cognition. It's about right living and right thinking. And so how are we, how are we going to get there? Well, the, the author here... Solomon gives us some clues. He says, first of all, verse 3, we have to receive instruction in wise dealing. We have to receive it. We have to recognize that wisdom isn't something that comes from within. It comes from outside of ourselves. Again, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. But what is it that we're receiving? There's, there's, there's these, this list of words and these beautiful descriptions here. We're, we're receiving instruction, it says. Another way of, of, of translating that word and interpreting that is to say it's, it's for discipline. We're receiving discipline. That means we're not born with wisdom. We have to get at it the hard way. By correction. We have to be corrected. We have to be reoriented and redirected. It's not our natural tendency or path to head in the direction of wisdom. God has to discipline us for that. Which means we have to have a posture of humility. We don't know it all. We don't see it all. We have to receive this understanding. And this instruction for wisdom will produce then an, an outworking in our conduct. Righteousness, it says. Justice. Equity. In other words, to see the world in our lives as God does means that, that, that we'll be reoriented away from, we'll have to be reoriented away from 
our own selfish tendencies and our, our sinful patterns. We'll have to learn to love what God loves and act as God would act. We're told here that wisdom makes us prudent. That might be a little bit of an unfamiliar word, prudent. It's, it doesn't mean prude. It means shrewd. Shrewdness. The ability to discern between truth and lies. The ability to discern between good and evil. Not to be deceived. And taken captive by the falsehoods of the world around us. We're told here that wisdom brings knowledge to the youthful. And again, as I, as I opened up in, in the introduction here this morning, the good question is, what kind of knowledge? What kind of knowledge? Well, here's what's interesting. As, as we explore the book of Proverbs over the coming months, there's one thing that, that continually stands out. And it's this. It's something that flies in the face, by the way, of common modern thinking. It's the fact that there's a pre-existing order in the world that we've been born into. There's a pre-existing order that we have been born into. That there's an inescapable link between actions and consequences. I said that flies in the face of, of world thinking because it really does. That's sort of the opposite philosophy of our, of our current age. Popular thinking is so disordered. So disordered. We're taught to think that, that everything that we think we know is merely it's a social construct. Right? It's all social constructs. that, and we, and we can choose then, as autonomous individuals, to diverge away from this social construct and, and, and forge our own path. One of the ways that that's been expressed, that kind of disordered thinking has been expressed in recent years, is, is through the emergence of a, of a phrase that I'm, I'm hearing a lot lately. I bet you are too. It's, it's this notion of my truth. Have you heard that? I need to speak my truth. I need to live my truth. That's actually a very dangerous idea. And I know that for some people, what they mean when they say that is that they need to tell a story of their own experience. Uh, they need to talk about something maybe difficult that's happened to them. They need to tell that story. They need to, to be a witness to something that they know very personally. And to that, I would say, that's fine. That's fine. But I, I, I would maybe just counsel to say, why not then just say, you need to tell the truth? Right? That's the truth. Not, not my truth. Not your truth. Because what's more often than not meant by that is, is this, this notion of living or speaking my truth has to do with this, this sort of postmodern belief that, that we should all be able to be free to abide by our own interpretations of things. To abide by our own interpretations of reality. We get to determine meaning for ourselves. We can decide what's true and not true for ourselves. And that may not necessarily be what's true or not true for somebody else. I can identify with whatever I feel or desire because that's my truth. 
And my autonomy can't be infringed upon. Listen, what we see over and over again in the Proverbs is something very different than that. Something very different from that. Proverbs 14.12, in fact, says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs points us to a pre-existing reality. One that's designed and maintained by God for our flourishing, for our well-being. And that's the way that points to true freedom and to the good life. And as we read the Proverbs over and over, we're going to see that wisdom points us to the order of creation. There's lots of calls to observe this. Look at that. See what's around you. Notice the order of creation. See what God has made all around us and let that instruct us about the order that God has designed for us and for our good. And again, to correct us when we get off of that ordered path. And we're called here in verse 5 to keep on learning. Let the wise hear. Notice that's different than verse 4, that we're, we're, we're seeing prudence given to the simple. Well, that makes sense. The simple, the unlearned, need to learn, right? But in verse 5 here, let the wise hear and increase in learning. The one who understands to obtain guidance. We need to keep on learning, always growing in wisdom. And if we understand rightly that wisdom is to see things through the eyes of the omnipotent one to, to, to understand things according to the wisdom of the infinite creator, then we certainly have to say, who can exhaust the wisdom of God? You know, when we, we just finished studying 2 Timothy, and I, I think it's really interesting that at the end of 2 Timothy, the, one of the very last things Paul says, at the, at the end of his life, he knows it's the end of his life. He's an aged old man at this point, And we would all probably and rightly say, Paul... You're one of the wisest people we've ever come in contact with. And what does he say? Knowing he's about to die, bring me my books. Bring especially the parchments. I need to keep growing. I need to keep seeking the wisdom of the Lord. That's a pretty amazing and insightful thing there, right? And that's what Proverbs here is calling us to. And finally, I love verse 6. I love verse 6. Look at it again. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like that to be true of you? To be able to say, I understand the sayings of, 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 of the wise. I understand these riddles and proverbs. It's, it's like an, an invitation to all of us to come and to sit in the midst of the sages. To sit in the midst of the philosophers. By the way, the word philosophy simply means love of wisdom. Right? To sit with wise old men and women who understand the nuances of life, who understand the, the, the complexities that can only be expressed in the words of poetry and paradox, and to be able to just sit and listen. And what we're, what we're, what we're told here is that as we do that, we'll begin to see as they see ultimately, we'll begin to see as God sees. And know, of course, that God sees it all. 
John Kitchen in his commentary on Proverbs evokes this image of a beautiful flower. I think this is a, a helpful picture. If you're a note taker, this is, this is probably worth drawing, right? He's got this, this picture of a flower that he wants us to think about. And he, he's at the center of the, of the flower, that, that sort of circle in the center. That's, that's wisdom. That's skillful living. And each of these different descriptive words that we see in verses 2 through 6 are like the petals of the flower that are growing out from the center. And they're connected to it. And they're connected to each other. Insight, knowledge, understanding, prudence, discretion, and so on. And, and he says, and they all sort of, they all add to the beauty of the flower. And when you see the whole picture, when you see the, 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 the wholeness of, of what all of this is sort of pointing us to, it gives greater understanding to what's involved in skillful living. And we say, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And where does it all lead us? Well, it leads us back to where we, we began. It leads us to verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. The beginning of knowledge. The beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. And it sort of begs two questions. What does it mean to fear the Lord and what's meant by beginning, right? What does that mean? Well, to fear the Lord is not to be afraid of Him in a negative way. At least not as His children, right? We're not, we're not fearing Him in judgment. We're not fearing Him as some cosmic ogre who's looking to, to squash us. right? It's, it's, it's in this sense, it's, it's quite positive. It's not a fear that would cause us to want to run away from Him as though we're afraid, but, but rather it's about reverence. It's about awe. It's understanding He is the Holy One. Jeremy led us so well this morning, continually kind of pointing us back to that idea. He is not like us. Esteban brought that out in, in his, his, his opening to his prayer. He is perfect. Right? He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the redeemer. He's the sovereign one in whom all of reality finds its existence. The fear of the Lord is that recognition that that's who He is. And He alone. And it draws us in. It makes us want to run towards Him. To fear the Lord is to recognize that everything, everything, everything is from Him. It's to Him. And it's for Him. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And therefore, what wisdom is, wisdom then is to see all things in light of His supremacy. It's all about Him. And then to rightly see ourselves as accountable to Him as the Holy One. That's what's implied by the word beginning here. It's not like the fear of the Lord is sort of step one in a series of steps. It's kind of like when, you, when you're putting together a piece of furniture that you bought at Ikea, right? Where by the time you get to, to step 36, you've kind of moved on and forgotten all about step one, right? It's not like that. 
but but rather, and Esteban, you brought this out. Where are you, by the way? I keep pointing at Trey. Sorry, you're back there. Uh, you brought this out earlier, and, and so true. Beginning in this sense is more like the foundation of a house. It's the beginning. It's it's what everything is built upon. It's what everything rests upon and finds its strength so that it doesn't fall down. That's what the beginning means here when we say the fear of the Lord is the, is the foundation of wisdom and everything hangs on it. So when I go to work tomorrow, when you go to work tomorrow, we're not just thinking about getting a paycheck. We're not just thinking about getting ahead, but we're guided by a fear of the Lord that recognizes I'm working for His glory. I'm I'm doing the thing that He has called and equipped and placed me to do. I'm I'm mindful of integrity. I'm, I'm mindful of faithfulness. I'm mindful of equity in my business dealings. And when I, when I come home to my spouse, I'm not just looking for self-fulfillment. I'm not just looking for personal gain, but I'm guided by God's call to serve, to love as He has loved, to display the beauty of the Gospel in the way that I lay down my life for my spouse. Or when I'm studying at school and I'm I'm dreaming about my future. I'm mindful that my skills and my gifts and my passions are a gift. God gave these things to me and He did that so that that, that I would recognize that they're given for a purpose that's greater than myself. That I would be able to use those things in such a way as aids to help me in in loving and, and serving other people. And again, bringing glory to God. It's this, it's this mindset that says no matter what I do, no matter what it is that I'm observing right now, I'm always asking, what does God think about this? What is, how does God see this? How, how would God want me to act and interact in this situation? Where do I see Him in this? That's wisdom. And ultimately, the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord is meant to point us to Jesus Christ. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I read that earlier. The second half says this, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is so important. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right, I want that. Lord, I want that. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. How can I possibly have knowledge of the Holy One? Well, what Solomon is getting at here is not an academic knowledge. It's actually what makes this even harder to answer. How can I have knowledge of the Holy One? He's he's talking about relational knowledge. He's saying it's not that you simply need to know about God, but to to actually know Him. That's insight. How do we know Him personally? How do we know Him relationally? Well, we need to be reconciled to Him. Verse 7 says that fools despise wisdom. And unfortunately for us, we're all fools by nature. Because we're all sinful 
by nature. We're sinful beings. And, and we can look at Romans chapter 1 and it tells us there that we've all become fools because in our sin, we suppress the truth. Fearing not the Lord, but, but all kinds of other things. Romans 1, 21 and 22 and verse 23, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we have fears of all kinds of other things other than Him. We cannot know God as long as we're bound by sin. We need to be forgiven. We need to be set free. And Jesus Christ is God's provision for our sin. It's only by His death and resurrection that the pathway to a relationship with God is possible. It's only by His death and resurrection that the pathway to God is possible. And the call to us, the call of wisdom, is to see Jesus for who He is to repent and to believe upon Him for our forgiveness, for our restoration to God. The call of wisdom is the call of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to make us born again, to lay a whole new foundation for everything in our lives, to therefore be built upon so that it can stand. The pathway to wisdom is the pathway that leads to the cross of Christ. It's the way of the Gospel. I love Psalm 25.14 because it talks there as well about this fear of the Lord. And it says there this, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. How can we be friends of God? The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Why? Because it says there, He makes known to them His covenant. He makes known to them His saving promises. He makes known to them His plan to redeem mankind for Himself, to make sinners His friends. And the covenant that He makes known to us points us directly to the cross of Christ. It is the covenant of salvation in the Gospel. So in saying that, I think it's important to reiterate this. The book of Proverbs is not a book that we can come to in our own strength. It's not a book that we can just sort of grasp all the truths from and then go about our own merry way, living our lives in our own power. I've got all this knowledge. It's not like that. Proverbs, like every other book of the Bible, points us to the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It points us to Him as the source. To Him as the way. The wisdom that we so desperately need is only available in Jesus who died for our sins so that we could know the Holy One. So I have to ask us all the question this morning. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? If you don't know Him, I would just plead with you, stop what you're doing. Stop everything and seek after Him. 
Because apart from Him, you're unable to experience the wisdom that God has intended for you. You are, in fact, what the Bible would call locked in foolishness. He's the path. All that you seek after, it's found only in the source. And that entails recognizing that you need to turn to Him in repentance and ask by faith that His saving work on the cross would be applied to you. You could be forgiven. And if you do know Him, and I'm sure most of us here this morning do, then this question has to be asked of us. Are we looking to Him as the beginning of wisdom in all aspects of our lives? Are we seeing through the eyes of wisdom? Are we, are we truly saying, your kingship over me is comprehensive, Lord Jesus. Make me wise. All of our lives are guided by the fear of something. We have to recognize that. All of our lives are guided by the fear of something. Maybe you're guided by the fear of failure. Maybe guided by the fear of acceptance. Maybe guided by a fear in your relationships. The fear of safety. A fear of, of health and well-being. Political fears. I mean, there's so many things that people are just so, so wrapped up in. And, and our lives are guided by those fears. And, and what we're told in Scripture so plainly is that all of those other fears, when they guide our lives, they lead to chaos. They lead to disorder. Only the fear of the Lord leads to wisdom and life. So I'm excited about where we're going this summer. I hope you're excited about it too. As Esteban mentioned earlier, it's very practical. It's very practical what Proverbs deals with. But it's, it's also very overarchingly big in a way that it points us to Jesus and the wisdom of God available to us in Him.